The first then of these blessings, which God hath jointly with my person sent unto you, is outward peace, that is, peace abroad with all foreign neighbours. For I thank God I may justly say, that never since I was a king, I either received wrong of any other Christian prince or state, or did wrong to any. I have ever, I praise God, yet kept peace and amity with all, which hath been so far tied to my person. As at my coming here you are witnesses, I found the state embarked in a great and tedious war, and only by mine arrival here, and by the peace of my person, is now amity kept, where war was before, which is no small blessing to a Christian commonwealth. For by peace abroad with their neighbours, the towns flourish, the merchants become rich, the trade doeth increase, and the people of all sorts of the land enjoy free liberty to exercise themselves in their several vocations without peril or disturbance. Not that I think this outward peace so inseparably tied to my person, as I dare assuredly promise to myself and to you the certain continuance thereof. But although outward peace be a great blessing, yet it is far inferior to peace within, as civil wars are more cruel and unnatural than wars abroad. And therefore the second great blessing that God hath with my person sent unto you is peace within, and that in a double form. First, by my descent linearly out of the loins of Henry the Seventh, is reunited and confirmed in me the union of the two princely roses of the two houses of Lancaster and York, whereof that king of happy memory was the first uniter, as he was also the first ground layer of the other piece. Lamentable and miserable events by the civil and bloody dissension betwixt these two houses was so great and so late as it need not be renewed unto your memories, which as it was first settled and united in. Hath not God first united these two kingdoms, both in language, religion, and similitude of manners? Yea, hath he not made us all one island, compassed with one sea, and of itself by nature so indivisible, as almost those that were borderers themselves on the late borders cannot distinguish, nor know, or discern their own limits? These two countries being separated neither by sea, nor great river, mountain, nor other strength of nature, but only by little small brooks, or demolished little walls, so as rather they were divided in apprehension than in effect. And now in the end, and fullness of time united, the right and title of both in my person, are like linearly descended of both the crowns, whereby it has now become like a little world within itself, being entrenched and fortified round about with a natural and yet admirable strong pond or ditch, whereby all the former fears of this nation are now quite cut off. The other part of the island being ever before now not only the place of landing to all strangers that was to make invasion here, but likewise moved by the enemies of this state by untimely incursions, to make enforced diversions from their conquest for defending themselves at home, and keeping sure their back door, as then it was called, which was the greatest hindrance, and let that ever my predecessors of this nation get in disturbing them from their many famous and glorious conquests abroad. What God hath conjoined then, let no man separate. I am the husband, and all the whole isle is my lawful wife. I am the head, and it is my body. I am the shepherd, and it is my flock. I hope therefore no man will be so unreasonable as to think that I am a Christian under the gospel should be a polygamist and husband to two wives. 
that I being the head should have a divided and monstrous body, or that being the shepherd to so fair a flock whose fold hath no wall to hedge it but the four seas should have my flock parted in two. But as I am assured that no honest subject of whatsoever degree within my whole dominions is less glad of this joyful union than I am. So may the frivolous objection of any that would be hinderers of this work, which God hath in my person already established, be easily answered, which can be none, except such as are either blind with ignorance or else transported with malice, being unable to live in a well-governed commonwealth and only delighting to fish in troubled waters. For if they would stand upon their reputation and privileges of any of the kingdoms, but neither peace outward nor peace inward, nor any other blessings that can follow thereupon, nor appearance of the perpetuity thereof, by propagation in the posterity, is but a weak pillar and a rotten reed to a lean unto, if God do not strengthen and by the staff of his blessing make them durable. For in vain doth the watchman watch the city, if the Lord be not the principal defence thereof. In vain doeth the builder build the house, if God give not the success. And in vain, as Paul saith, doeth Paul plant and Apollo water, if God give not the increase. For all worldly blessings are but like swift passing shadows, fading flowers, or chaff blown before the wind, if by the profession of true religion and works according thereunto, God be not moved to maintain and settle the throne of princes. And although that since mine entry into this kingdom I have both by meeting with diverse of the ecclesiastical estate, for I shall never, with God's grace, be ashamed to make public profession thereof at all occasions, lest God should be ashamed to profess and allow me before men and angels, especially lest that at this time men might presume further upon the misknowledge of my meaning to trouble this parliament of ours, than were convenient. At my first coming, although I found but one religion, and that by which myself is professed, publicly allowed, and by the law maintained, yet found I another sort of religion, besides a private sect lurking within the bowels of this nation. The first is the true religion, which by me is professed, and by the law is established. The second is the falsely called Catholics, but truly Papists. The third, which I call a sect rather than religion, is the Puritans and Novelists, which do not so far differ from us in points of religion as in their confused forms of policy and parody, being ever discontented with the present government and impatient to suffer any superiority, which maketh their sect unable to be suffered in any well-governed commonwealth. But as for my course toward them, I remit it to my proclamations made upon that subject, and now for the papist, I must put a difference betwixt mine own private profession of mine own salvation and my politic government of the realm for the weal and quietness thereof. As for mine own profession, you have me your head now amongst you of the same religion that the body is of. As I am no stranger to you in blood, no more am I stranger to you in faith or in the matters concerning the house of God. And although this my profession be according to mine education, wherein, I thank God, I suck the milk of God's truth with the milk of my nurse. Yet do I here protest unto you that I would never for such a conceit of constancy or other prejudice opinion have so firmly kept my first profession if I had not found it agreeable to all reason and to the rule of my conscience. But I was never violent nor unreasonable in my profession. 
I acknowledge the Roman church to be our mother church, although defiled with some infirmities and corruptions, as the Jews were when they crucified Christ. And as I am none enemy to the life of a sick man, because I would have his body purged of all ill humours, no more am I enemy to their church, because I would have them reform their errors, not wishing the downthrowing of the temple, but that it might be purged and cleansed from corruption. Otherwise, how can they wish us to enter, if their house be not first made clean? But as I would loathe to dispense in the least point of mine own conscience, for any worldly Welcome, friends, to a history of the King James Bible podcast. To find more episodes and information, just go to our website, www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now here is GK with the latest episode. Well, our introduction today is some portions of James's opening speech at the First Parliament on the 19th of March, 1603. Each of those portions sets the stage for this episode. Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of A History of the King James Bible Podcast, The True Religion. Today we will finish our focus on James in special, and move on to other topics in the next episode. I may come back to a James-specific episode in the future as I'm gathering some odds and ends as I go along that may be worth sharing. An example of that might be, what was his super-secret squirrel code name when sending ciphers and such? If you'd like me to return to James at some stage, email me or message me on Facebook if you're on my friends list and let me know. I've come to enjoy his company as we have gone along and to be honest, I only planned to do four James-specific episodes when I started, and stone the crows, me old cobbers, here we are at episode six, and we're still talking about him in special. Let's turn to this episode. The premise for this episode is that James was a man of unity and peace. One rather charming story comes from when he was just 20 years old. To try and solve a dispute between two pairs of earls, he invited them to a banquet, then had them take hands and walk two by two from Holyrood House to the market, apparently to the approval of the locals present at the time. Now, it might sound rather unworldly, especially from our viewpoint in the 21st century, but I give him props for having a go. Now, keep these ideals of peace and unity in mind as we talk about James's religious views, because we're going to be doing a fair bit of that in this episode. We're going to learn just what James's James's religious views were, and for the most part, we're going to hear them from his own mouth, so to speak. James had strong views on his religion, the true religion, and he had strong views on the beliefs and practices of others. He wasn't fond of the Puritans, for mostly political reasons, neither was he fond of the Catholic Church, for mostly religious reasons. I'm going to try and reconcile, if not for you, then for myself, these ideals of peace and unity with his critical views of the Puritans and the Catholics. That is, if he was such a good bloke when it came to peace and unity, why did he seem to get as mad as a cut snake when it came to the Puritans and the Catholics? 
Let's see if I can make sense of this. Before we move on, it might be helpful to go back and listen to those portions of his speech that I shared in our intro. Try and grasp the substance of what he was saying. This will help your understanding as we proceed here. Okay, let's go. James wanted to see religious and political unity not only in Britain, but also beyond its borders. He believed if Europe could come together under one Christian banner, it would see an end to the continuous wars and bloodshed of the previous centuries. His advice to his ambassadors was that of peace with the princes of Europe. Indeed, for example, peace with Spain is a highlight of his reign. Before having been crowned as the King of England, James held the very strong conviction that he was responsible for the church. James was raised in a time of turmoil in Scotland. Not all of it religious, but certainly that also played a part. As we have discussed, despite a number of his advisers and tutors arguing otherwise, James's view was that a king should not only rule in a civil sense, but also in religion. Ponder this as we also consider his view that the church should not have power over civil authorities. Just as an aside, part of his reasoning for this, as far as I can tell, was that some of the thundering sermons were clearly aimed at him from the clergy in Scotland, sometimes when he was present in the congregation. His way of dealing with these issues was to link the church closer to the crown. The details are a little too complex for our ends here, but over a number of years, both in Scotland and after his arrival in England, James's reorganisation resulted in a polity which combined Episcopal, where bishops are included in the church hierarchy, and Presbyterian, where elders are part of the church, form a government. And sorry for my pronunciation there, that was form of government. Indeed, the icing on this layer cake was when he had three English bishops consecrate three Scottish bishops in England in 1610, thus restoring to the Scottish Kirk the apostolic succession that had been lost to Scotland but maintained in England. James was in favour of having the church involved in the government as a counterbalance to the Lords, with him as head, placed there by God, ruling by heredity and divine right. God's representative on earth. Perhaps he had Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 in mind. Essentially, James believed he was placed on the throne by God to rule and care for his people like a shepherd might over his flock. Indeed, in his writings, James did not hesitate to quote scripture to support his arguments. For example, in his work, The True Law of Free Monarchies, James inserts whole portions of scripture into the text to support his view of the relationship between the people and their king. He also believed that kings were above the law. How about that? That one surprised me, to be honest. Um, okay. He also believed that kings were above the law, but a good king would not break the law. So that doesn't surprise me about him, since it was his law after all. He also asserted that wicked kings would face divine judgment and that wicked kings were sent by God to a people as a curse to them and a plague for their sins. Now we can see by these contentions that James's relationship with his people, as he saw it, was very much based upon the divine right, the family relationship and the shepherd and his flock. As I said earlier here, 
James had strong views on religion, but what was the true religion that James spoke of? Essentially, James's religious outlook comes from the Scottish reformers of his early reign. Let's take a look at James's true religion. I'm going to read here some portions from Patterson's Reunion of Christendom, which I've used as a basis for a fair bit of this episode. James began by describing the king's duty to God, in the course of which he stated the key components of his own religious faith, which he invited his son to follow. His religion was based on the plain words of the scripture, without the which all points of religion are superfluous, as anything contrary to the same is abomination. Salvation he understood as a result of Christ's sacrifice, apprehended by faith, not result of works. Faith was the free gift of God and was nourished by prayer. With reference to the church, he warned the young prince to avoid two extremes. The one, to believe with the papists, the church's authority, better than your own knowledge. The other, to lean with the Anabaptists to your own conceits and dreamed revelations. Consideration of his mother's reign evidently led James to consider the way in which the Scottish Reformation had occurred. He had no doubt that it was the pride, ambition and avarice of the old church which had brought about its downfall. But in the process, many things were inordinately done by a popular tumult and rebellion, with the result that the traditional polity of the church was destroyed and the Reformation lacked a prince's order. James said that some fiery spirited men in the ministry then got a considerable popular following, began to think about a democratic form of government and resolved to remain active in politics. They had been involved in every faction James had known since his youth. They overshadowed and intimidated the learned, godly and modest ministers. James warned his son against such Puritans, describing them as very pests in the church and common weal, whom no deserts can oblige, neither oaths or promises bind, breathing nothing but sedition and calumnies, aspiring without measure, railing without reason, and making their own imaginations, without any warrant of the word, the square of their conscience. The best antidote for their poison was to advance the godly, learned and modest men of the ministry, of whom there were many, to benefices and bishoprics. So we see here, um, we've just discussed um, what James's religion was, but also what it wasn't. But you'll see in there, as I pointed out earlier, he's railing here against the uh, Puritans. But you'll notice that most of it is on a um, political basis, uh, not so much against their religious views. So back to Patterson here. Underlying the discussion of religion was James's vision of the church as one which would foster moral behavior, peace in the commonwealth and true learning. The king had much of the responsibility for seeing that the church developed in this way. He called upon the prince to be a loving, nourished father to the church, seeing all the churches within your dominions planted with good pastors, the schools, the seminary of the church, maintained the doctrine and discipline preserved in purity according to God's word, a sufficient provision for their sustentation, a comely order in their policy, pride punished, 
humility advanced, and they so to reverence their superiors and their flocks them, as the flourishing of your church in piety, peace and learning may be one of the chief points of your earthly glory. Just as the prince was to be wary of the vain Puritan, so he was to be of proud papal bishops. Against fractious clergy he was to proceed only on good ground and warrant, but without much debate. No meetings or conventions of clergy were to be held without his knowledge and permission. A clue to James's view of his own role in the church is to be found in a comment on clothing suitable for a king, where he urges modest dress in keeping with the religious nature of his position. Be also moderate in your raiment, not over lightly like a candy soldier or a vain young courtier, nor yet over gravely like a minister, as your office is likewise mixed betwixt ecclesiastical and civil estate. For a king is not mere lacus. Now my Latin is not as good as my Greek, but as far as I know it's talking about a king is not just part of the laity, he's not just a layman. Um, for a king is not mere lacus, as both the Papists and the Anabaptists would have him, to the which error also the Puritans incline over far. By not a mere layman, oh, so there we have it there, it is. it does mean a mere layman, um, by not a mere layman, James no doubt meant to point both to his constitutional responsibility for the church and to the sacred character of the monarchy itself. Now, as we heard in his opening speech to Parliament, and in this portion of Patterson's work, James's disdain for the Puritans had more to do with politics than religion. The Catholic Church is a different story. It's about the religion. But as we will see here soon... James was prepared to open a dialogue with the Catholic Church, for as we heard in his opening speech to Parliament, he considered the Catholic Church the Mother Church. We will come to that shortly. Now let's look further into some of James's views on the Catholic Church, in particular the office of the Pope. We also hear again about James's true religion. Bear in mind that this portion of Patterson's work is discussing an earlier point in James's life before he came to the throne in England, but I don't think it makes much difference to his overall point of view. Actually, I think it shows us the consistency of his views. James himself wrote and published, in 1588 and 1589, two meditations on scripture that vividly expressed his theological convictions. His fruitful meditation on Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10, written in 1588, the year of the Amada, to rally his countrymen against attack, developed the view that Christendom had long suffered from the rule of the Antichrist and his clergy. This rule had largely overcome the sincere preaching of the gospel, the true use of the sacraments, which are seals and pledges of the promises contained therein, and lawful exercise of Christian discipline. Despite the Antichrist's joining forces with the kings of the earth, however, victory shall he not have, and shame and confusion shall be his. The stronger those forces became, the faster approaches their rack and the day of our delivery. As to whether the Pope bore the marks of the Antichrist, James asked bluntly, Doeth he not usurp Christ his office? calling himself universal bishop and head of the church? Blasphemeth he not in denying us to be saved by the imputation of Christ his righteousness? 
Hath he not so fully ruled over the world these many hundredth years? As to the fire went he, whosoever the he was, that durst deny any part of his usurped supremacy. In James's meditation on 1 Chronicles 15 verses 25 to 29, the king gave thanks for his country's dramatic deliverance from the Amada. When King David had vanquished the Philistines, he brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to his house in great triumph and gladness, accompanied with the sound of musical instruments. David himself danced and rejoiced in a way which offended his wife Michal. James defended dancing, playing and such like actions as matters indifferent in themselves and good or evil according to their use and intention of the user. In any case, it was a religious response of the heart that mattered. He invited his countrymen to join him in bringing in the ark by receiving the gospel and by reforming themselves as becomes regenerate Christians. Christ is the source of salvation, James reminded his readers. Christians are saved through faith as a result of which they strive to live in conformity with God's will. Despite his own religious faith and that of most of his countrymen, there were, nevertheless, important reasons why James did not want to alienate the Catholic interest in Scotland. For one thing, he depended on members of the nobility, including members of traditionally Catholic families who had served his mother, to help control extensive areas of the North and West. For another, he wanted to avoid forcing prominent Catholics into alliances with France or Spain, with the potential such alliances had for fomenting civil war. There are also personal reasons. The Earl and Countess of Huntley, for example, were very much his protégés. He must also have hesitated to condemn the Catholic lords for being in communication with Catholic powers abroad when he himself had been in communication with Spain, the papacy, the Guises, his French cousins, and even the Duke of Parma. Um, now, we're going to go into uh, a bit more about his communication with Catholics a little bit later on, a little bit deeper, which is something I'm sure um, many of us have not heard about before. But before we do that, we will be heading back to discuss the gunpowder plot. Uh, just a reminder that you can find our website at www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. You can also find us on iTunes. And if you're looking for the link to that, you can go to our website and find it on any post where an episode of the series is posted. Um, other than that, you can also search on iTunes for A History of the King James Bible Podcast uh, with G.K. Flint as the author. Please remember to share the series with your friends and family. Um, and also write to me if you think it might be worthwhile if, if to start up a a Facebook page or a Facebook group where we can get together and discuss further the issues raised in the podcast. Um, I'm a little bit cautious about doing that, to be honest, uh, because um, I understand that there are many people with very different points of view of the King James Bible, and I certainly don't want to create a forum for people just to arrive there and argue. But if you think it'd be worthwhile, we can get together and discuss the issues raised in the podcast itself. 
um, and I hear from enough of you, then I'd give that some consideration. So um, let's see where we can go with that. Don't forget also, you can find me on my other show, on my other podcast show, uh, Like Flint Radio. That's www.likeflintradio.com. And if you want to contact me about this series, you can write to me, gk at likeflintradio.com. That's all lowercase, gk at likeflintradio.com. All right, let's get back to James's True Religion. I believe James was more tolerant toward the Catholic Church and Catholics in general than almost all his contemporaneous Protestant monarchs, having brought back into the fold banished lords when he was king in Scotland, for example. But he had his limits for sure. In our last episode, we discussed the gunpowder plot. The gunpowder plot wasn't the only time that his loyal subjects plotted against James. Even Sir Walter Raleigh was caught in a conspiracy against James and spent 14 years in the Tower for his role in the main plot. That's the main plot, that's its title. Which is good for him because he was up for execution, but James showed clemency. It was Raleigh's second time in the Tower having been sent there by Lizzie some years earlier. But I digress. No, wait, wait, wait. He's an interesting character. Do some research on him for yourself. It's said that he was a mover and shaker in the English colonisation of America. Also, while you're looking into this, check out the history of the Irish prisoners sold into slavery, many who ended up in Virginia, long before the English had any thoughts about sending prisoners to the Antipodes. Let's get back to the gunpowder plot. I'm going to once again turn to Stuart's The Cradle King for assistance here. Don't forget again to check out the references page at our website, which I'll add to as we go along. So we begin here with reference to the gunpowder plot. This time, however, James was in no mood to show mercy, even for the sake of his public image. Fawkes had confessed that there was no cause moving him or them but merely and only religion, namely his Roman Catholic faith. What did it mean, asked James, that Christian men, at least so called, English, born within the country, should practice the destruction of their king, his posterity, their country and all? On the one hand, it did not follow that all professing that Romish religion were guilty of the same. On the other, it is true that no other sect of heretics, not excepting Turk, Jew, nor Pagan, no, not even those of Calicut, who adore the devil, did ever maintain by their grounds of their religion that it was lawful, or rather meritorious, as the Roman Catholics call it, to murder princes of people for quarrel of religion. Parliament reacted at the end of May 1606 by passing an act for the better discovering and repressing of popish recusants, passing tougher laws against Catholic recusants, which included what it termed the Oath of Allegiance. An English Catholic could now be commanded to swear this oath, which acknowledged James as lawful king, denied the power of the Pope to depose him, and went on to condemn as impious and heretical the damnable doctrine that a sovereign excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church could lawfully be deposed and murdered. In practice, 
many lay Catholics chose to take the oath, justifying it to themselves on the ground that it did not insist that they abjure their faith. Jesuits and priests who refused to take it, however, were banished from the realm. James's move attracted international opposition. While he saw the oath as a civil matter concerning the allegiance of subjects to their sovereign, Rome inevitably viewed it as a matter of spiritual concern that denied papal supremacy and was thus de facto heretical. This disagreement was made more intense by the death in 1605 of Clement VIII and his succession by the more hard-line Paul V. The subsequent breakdown of relations with Rome depressed the king. In early 1606, the Venetian ambassador reported His Majesty on Sunday last, while at chapel and afterwards at dinner, appeared very subdued and melancholy. He did not speak at all, though those in attendance gave him occasion. This is unlike his usual manner. After dinner, however, he broke out with great violence. I have dispatches from Rome informing me that the Pope intends to excommunicate me. The Catholics threaten to dethrone me and to take my life unless I grant them the liberty of conscience. I shall most certainly be obliged to stain my hands with their blood, though sorely against my will. But they shall not think they can frighten me, for they shall taste of the agony first. I do not know upon what they found this cursed doctrine that they are permitted to plot against the lives of princes. Sometimes I am amazed that when I see that the princes of Christendom are so blinded that they do not perceive the great injury inflicted on them by so false a doctrine. He continued for a whole hour to talk in a similar strain, and those in attendance praised and approved. Now it goes on here to say that after this, it, this sort of... um back and forth between James and the Catholic Church became actually uh, an obsession for him and uh, something that he chewed on for quite a while. But we'll have a bit more to say about that shortly. Um, uh, And a surprising change in his tone, which we'll discuss also shortly. Just before we do move on, however, I'd like to reread a part of this, uh, part of James's speech on this matter. And I think it's worth going back and having a listen. Uh, I think I've already said it once in this episode, but go back and listen to the introductory uh, speech or portions of it that I gave from James's own mouth, um, because I think that's really the most important thing I'd like you to get out of, um, especially these last two episodes, episodes five and six, what James himself had to say about uh, the Catholic church and catholics in general and the puritans Um, but i'll just reread this and let you make up your own mind as to what it might mean on the other hand it did not follow that all professing that romish religion were guilty of the same on the other it is true that no other sect of heretics not excepting turk jew nor pagan no not even those of calicut who adore the devil did ever maintain by their grounds of their religion that it was lawful, or rather meritorious, as the Roman Catholics call it, to murder princes of people for quarrel of religion. So I'll let you ponder on that as we move on. With regard to the oath of allegiance, which caused James so much heartache, and I'm sure great angst for many Catholics, I wonder if we can look at this from a different angle. For many of us, we would argue that causing people to take this oath was impinging upon their conscience. 
their right to freedom of religion. But let's look at this in context and see if we can't find the positive within. This was a dangerous era. Plots, counterplots, insurrection, assassinations, indeed a time where some could create a reasonable argument that the Jesuits were behind much of the troubles. I mean, after all, there was a counter-reformation underway. So here we have our mate King James, raised in this tumult, a man whom I argue sought peace and unity, unlike many of his predecessors, who were more than happy to remove heads and other body parts to make a point. Here he is, and perhaps he has found a way to allow the Catholic population to live unmolested by taking this oath. What do you think? Let's move on. No, wait, wait, wait. Let's not move on just yet. There are so many adverse points we could draw here. Granted. But again, I argue we have to see this in context. James knows the Counter-Reformation is underway. He knows he and his family are its targets. He also knows Britain has enemies within who are prepared to work with those on the continent to destroy the nation and its church. He also believes he is the shepherd of his people, put there by God. But he is not, despite some of his own rhetoric, a bloodthirsty ruler, unlike Bloody Mary and the like. No, he wants to avoid slaughter, so he's trying to find a way through this quagmire. Was he successful? In short, yes. History shows that before and after James, there were far more deaths by war and execution than during his reign. In my humble opinion, Catholics under James's rule fared better than under Lizzie's, and they certainly fared better than the Protestants did under Bloody Mary's rule. Bloody Mary being Mary I, Queen of England and Ireland before Lizzie. Think about it. Would you rather be tolerated, exiled, or beheaded? Harsh sounding, I know, but in the era we are discussing, it was what a number of people had to consider. Okay, so I think I've made my point. James comes out as quite a tolerant ruler. James was all for justice and peace for his Catholic subjects who could live without molestation, provided they did not upset the apple cart, so to speak. We're going to see just how tolerant, nay, conciliatory, he was. I've mentioned before that this episode would hold some surprises for a few of us, and that is to do with James's willingness to work with the Catholics on the continent to bring about peace in Europe by an ecumenical council. Most of my research here comes from Patterson's work, King James 6 and 1 and the Reunion of Christendom, and it's also based upon the political works of King James, in particular his speech to Parliament in 1603. Or should I say not in particular but in special, if I want to use the term of the time. It all begins with a congratulatory letter to James about his ascension to the English throne from one Jacques-Auguste Dethieu, President of the French Parliament and Librarian to Henry IV of France. Let's read some Patterson now to see that this went far beyond a congratulatory letter. Dethieu's letter specifically asked James, who was now cultivating new friendships and taking on new duties, to promote the concord of the church with common consent rather than limiting himself to establishing peace within his own borders. Religious reconciliation, particularly in France, had long been one of de Thou's major concerns. Brought up and educated during the French religious wars, 
he had intended at one time to enter the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church, but he had become instead a lawyer. If Dethew's audacious request that James commit himself to the cause of Christian unity is surprising, the king's reply is equally so. In his letter from Westminster on the 4th of March 1604, James thanked Dethew for his letter and book and declared that he took in good part Dethew's exhortation that he participate in the union of the church by helping to compose the differences which prevail in religion. He assured Dethew that he was not only well disposed to this enterprise, but wholeheartedly committed to it. James declared that he had never been of a sectarian spirit nor resistant to the well-being of Christendom. He wished, moreover, that all princes and potentates were touched by the same inclination and desire as he. James's hope was to achieve and manage a work so worthy and important to that good conclusion, namely to the solace and universal peace of Christendom, the king thereby pledged to be an active participant in a movement aimed at bringing about a new era of religious peace and concord in Europe. This exchange of letters between a Catholic historian and jurist closely associated with the King of France and a Protestant king brought up as a Calvinist in Scotland and now the Supreme Governor of the Church of England is striking in the concern both men showed for a religious peace beyond their own national borders. Neither Defew nor James was content to see religious issues dealt with only on one side of the English Channel. Both felt that religious differences posed a serious threat to the Europe of which their countries were a part. Both believed that a broader, more permanent settlement was urgently needed. Their letters speak of the concord of the church, not the churches, and they stress the well-being of Christendom. Neither man, moreover, was simply using polite and well-modulated phrases without any intention of acting in accordance with his stated convictions. James devoted a great deal of his time for more than two decades on the English throne to the task he had agreed to help carry out. Indeed, he had already begun his work through diplomatic channels, as Defew was probably aware. James's concern for church unity on an international scale, reaching across the nominational as well as national boundaries, became evident at the time of his accession in England, but it had been shaped and developed in Scotland, where he had been king for 35 of his 36 years before coming to England. James was also willing to take part in an ecumenical council to see if there could be a way to reunite Christendom. Of course, as we have heard, and we'll see now, James had strong views on what, re- what true religion was, and he would most certainly bring his views to any meeting. Let me read directly from his first speech, delivered to Parliament in March 1603. This is taken from the same speech as were the portions at the beginning of this episode. Their point of doctrine is that arrogant and ambitious supremacy of their head, the Pope, whereby he not only claims to be spiritual head of all Christians, but also to have an imperial civil power over all kings and emperors, dethroning and decrowning princes with his foot as pleaseth him, and dispensing and disposing of all kingdoms and empires at his appetite. The other point which they observe in continual practice is the assassinates and murders of kings, thinking it no sin, 
but rather a matter of salvation to do all actions of rebellion and hostility against their natural sovereign lord. If he be once cursed, his subjects discharge of their fidelity and his kingdom given a prey by that three-crowned monarch, or rather monster, their head. And in this point, I have no occasion to speak further here, saving that I could wish from my heart that it would please God to make me one of the members of such a general Christian union and religion as laying willfulness aside on both hands, we might meet in the middest, which is the centre and perfection of all things. For if they would leave and be ashamed of such new and gross corruptions of theirs, as themselves cannot maintain, nor deny to be worthy of reformation, I would for my own part be content to meet them in the midway, so that all novelties might be renounced on either side. For as my faith is the true, ancient, Catholic and apostolic faith, grounded upon the scriptures and express word of God, so will I ever yield all reverence to antiquity in the points of ecclesiastical policy. And by that means shall I ever, with God's grace, keep myself from being either a heretic in faith or schismatic in matters of policy. But of one thing I would have the papists of this land to be admonished, that they presume not so much upon my lenity, because I would be loath to be thought a persecutor, as thereupon to think it lawful for them daily to increase their number and strengthen this kingdom, whereby, if not in my time, at least in the time of my posterity, they might be in hope to erect their religion again. No, let them assure themselves that as I am a friend to their persons if they be good subjects, so am I a vowed enemy and do denounce mortal war to their errors. And that as I would be sorry to be driven by their ill behaviour from the protection and conservation of their bodies and lives so will I never cease as far as I can to tread down their errors and wrong opinions. For I could not permit the increase and growing of their religion without first betraying of myself and mine own conscience. And that was from James's speech as it was delivered in the upper house of the parliament to the Lord's spiritual and temporal and to the knights, citizens and burgesses there assembled on Monday the 19th day of March 1603 being the first day of the first parliament. This general Christian union James spoke of in his speech showed that James hoped to bring about an ecumenical council and indeed through diplomatic channels James expressed a desire for an ecumenical council to discuss religion and the place of the papacy. Again, let us turn to Patterson to learn more. So returning again to Patterson, James thus proposed that the papacy take the initiative of calling a council which, it was hoped, would secure the religious peace of Christendom. At the end of September, the Venetian secretary found James wholeheartedly behind the plan, though there were aspects of the plan, as the Venetian understood it, about which the papacy might well have been apprehensive. Writing from Oxford on September 28, 1603, Scaramelli, uh, Scaramelli was the Venetian secretary, reported to the Doge and Senate that the king showed a growing desire for the assembly of a free council to discuss the basis of religion and the question of papal authority. Meanwhile, in a conversation with the French ambassador to England, Christophe de Harley, Comte de Beaumont, 
on July 23, 1603, James had spoken in some detail about his hopes for a general or ecumenical council, a project which he evidently hoped the French king would support. Henry IV had, after all, proposed to council himself in the 1580s and 1590s as a means of ending the religious conflicts within France. The setting for James's remarks was a frank exchange of views about religion and the powers of the papacy following a hunt which the king and the ambassador had enjoyed together. Here we have James hunting again. Beaumont assured James that if he would return to the church from which he had been snatched away from his youth, Henry IV would support him with advice and influence and that Pope Clement VIII would use this as a means of achieving the union and the reformation of the said church in Christendom. James replied that he was not at all a heretic, that is to say one refusing to recognise the truth that he was no Puritan nor even less separated from the church. He considered hierarchy essential to the church, and the Pope, the first bishop in it, president and moderator in council, but not head or superior. There were, he observed, ceremonies and other things indifferent, which were matters of dispute among Christians, as well as disagreements about matters of faith. He took a broadly tolerant view of the first and entrusted the decision on the second to the decree of a general council well and legitimately assembled in a neutral place with free access and made up of persons of honour, of virtue and of learning. In order to secure such a council, the king promised that he would ask all his friends to commit their word and authority with his. Without such a resolution, James argued the diversity of religious opinions which had spread across all nations would be a continuing occasion of wars fomented by ambitious princes and, and sometimes abetted even by the popes themselves in order to better establish their grandeur. Unless this religious dissension were resolved by means of a general council, James saw no way to hope for peace in the church. Just to put this all in context and really to set us up for our next episode. It was around this time that James had to deal with another sect on matters of religion, that being the Puritans who played no small part in the raising of issues which led to the calling of the Hampton Court Conference. Now this conference, from which came the call for a new Bible, and the reason for this series, was a very big deal on James's calendar, and mine, as it's turned out. We're going to come to that in our next episode, but let's bring this one to a close here. The reason for this episode is to demonstrate my contention that James was a man of peace who desired unity among Christians. Was he successful? In my humble opinion, not quite, but he gave it a red-hot go. Why did he fail? Well, that's clear. He had his own strong views on religion, just like the Catholic Church did, and just like other sects, like the Puritans. However, during this whole period, in fact his whole life, James was a man of reconciliation. Was he a tolerant monarch? Yes. In this era, he would have to have been one of, if not the most tolerant that I've ever heard of. Did he have faults? My answer to that is a question with an answer. Was he a man? Yes. As we've made our way through this episode, we've had the opportunity to hear what James's religion was. 
mostly in his own words. For my money, that's the best way to get to the heart of any matter. So what was James's true religion? It was an ancient apostolic faith grounded on the scriptures. It contained a gospel with which one could be reformed, with Christ as the source of salvation. As a result of Christ's sacrifice, Christians are saved through faith, not of works, which is a free gift of God, as a result of which they strive to live in conformity with God's will. This is what he believed. But what about James the man? I've said it so many times. James was a man of peace, unity and reconciliation. Knowing as well as I believe I do how well versed he was in the scriptures, I can't help but think he knew very well how Paul had said in 2 Corinthians that God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And that's how I view James. Okay, we'll leave it there for now. Join me next time on a History of the King James Bible podcast as we travel to the old Archbishop of York's digs for the Hampton Court Conference. So until then, God bless and hooroo. For by pre, for by piece of prod, blah, inseparably tied to my person, as I dare assure, assure as I, blah, 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 nor appearance of the perpetuate, blah. dear, oh dear.